Should we come and pray as we come to God's word? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you give us your word to speak to us. Uh, not just to kind of look at you remotely, but to know you, to draw close to you, to grow stronger in our appreciation of what you are like, who you are to us, what you have done for us. Father, thank you so much for these words that are so rich, that are full of such great truth. Would you nourish our hearts with it? Uh, Would you make them come alive to it? We pray that you would speak to us this morning and convict us of who you are and your great love for us in Christ. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, in um, uh, looking at this passage this week, I was reminded of a children's book that um, I haven't actually read very much of, but I, I really liked the title of. I don't know if you've come across books where you like the title. You know, they can encapsulate so much in them. Um, uh, you might be familiar if you've got small kids uh, in the kind of dim, maybe more recent past. Um, it is written by the author of the Jesus Storybook Bible, um, Sally Lloyd-Jones. The book is called Thoughts That Make Your Heart Sing. Are people familiar with that? Thoughts that make your heart sing. It's a book that's written uh, as a sort of devotional for parents to share truths with their children about God, uh, looking at parts of God's word and what he's like. And they call the title Truths, uh, Thoughts sorry, that Make Your Heart Sing. Now, I, I really just love that as a title because I think it encapsulates what all truth about God should do. Uh, thoughts about God, what he is like, They should make our hearts sing if we understand them, if we let them sink in. See, our God is not a Wikipedia page. He is not an encyclopedia. There is something tragic when saying things about God kind of get banished to a realm of dull and boring, technical things. Uh, Perhaps the word theology becomes a sort of a bad word. It's for the academics, those who want to spend hours arguing about things that are completely insignificant. No, thoughts about God, true thoughts about God, should make our hearts sing. Uh, In fact, what we're looking at this morning is such a song. This is a song from Paul, the apostle, who's writing this letter to the Ephesians. This is his song as he thinks about who God is, as he, as he turns his mind to think about who the God is that he and the Ephesians share, he can't help but sing. These words pour out of him. In fact, uh, verses 3 to 14 are one giant sentence. Uh, we're actually only looking at half of the sentence this week. Uh, but one giant sentence, because as Paul thinks about who God is, and he thinks about what he wants to convey about who this God is to the Ephesian believers, his heart can't help but sing. Now, this song kind of summarizes a number of things that are going to come up in the rest of the book. He's going to touch on some areas that he will then expand on in the rest of the letter. But this big picture really is the the song that needs to kind of be in the background as we hear the rest of the book. This sets the tone, if you like, for how we make sense of, respond to, draw near to God after all he has done for us. Now, like any good song uh, that is catchy, uh, songs that are, are catchy, that are good, they, they draw us in, don't they? They, they start to get our, our feet beating with the rhythm. Uh, we start humming the tune in the shower. Um, my prayer this morning is as we look at this part of Paul's song, his heart singing, that our hearts will start to beat more quickly. 
that our hearts will start to hum this tune with him, that as we turn our thoughts to think about these incredible things that Paul says, our hearts would be stirred to sing with him. Uh, Well, look with me uh, at the first part of this um, song. And it starts in in verse 3. And this, if you like, is the sort of chorus to the song. Let me read it again. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Uh, This is the the summary of the song, uh, and it has two main uh, points, I think. The first is this. This is a song of praise. Praise be to God. Praise him. Thank him. Worship him. Say wow when you look at him. Because of all that he is and all that he's done. Notice that we're going to see things about what God has done for us. And yet Paul's praise doesn't just sort of stop at the gifts. He doesn't just focus on the actual things that we have as if God has sort of given things to us. No, he praises through those things to the one who gives them to us. To what God is like. To who he is. To how he has dealt with us. He deserves praise because ultimately he's the one who has done everything for us. This is a song of praise. But it's also a song that is designed to give us confidence. And in fact, the two are linked. As we become more confident in what we have been given by God, we both know him better, but our hearts will be stirred to praise. Do you see what he says? He says we're to praise God the Father, um, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Why are we to praise God? What, What is this song going to expand on? It is that we have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. Already, now, we have been given it. Spiritual blessing here, I think, is getting at the idea of the gift that the Spirit is to the believer. In being united to Christ by the Spirit, we've been given everything. God hasn't got us on probation. He's not waiting for us to kind of finish off the 30%. He's given us everything. Notice it's in Christ, as we started to see last week. This is only going to come true of us if we are connected to him. Uh, Actually, we'll see in the second part of the song next week how we become connected to him. But this is only for those who are connected to Jesus. But notice, true, that these blessings are in the heavenly realms. They are things that are true of us in Jesus, who is at the right hand of the Father. Uh, In this sense, Paul is writing to encourage these Ephesian believers about things that they have right now that they might not realize. Uh, And we are in the same situation. If we are in Christ... These things that Paul talks about, these spiritual blessings, they've been given to us in Christ, but they're in the heavenly realms. The Christian life, as it were, is growing in confidence of all that we have been given already in Christ. Uh, I was um, going down to uh, London um, a year and a bit ago, and uh, this actually was my first trip on the road for quite a while, having had the sort of COVID online thing, and um, I'm eager to get there in person. And yet, on the M25, I suddenly hear that sound... Like, that's a bit weird. And I kind of see some people driving past and, and beeping. And I'm thinking, is that me or was that a car behind? Uh, and then it became clear that my, my tire had burst. Okay, And that was, it quickly became clear. Now, wonderfully, I managed to leave the M25 because that's not where you want to stop with that sort of problem. And I eventually had to change that. I decided, okay, I need a new tire, right? This isn't a kind of pump it up and keep going uh, solution. Uh, and at that point, I felt slightly kind of nervous and anxious because I thought, I, I've changed a tire on a car before, but I can't remember changing a tire on this car. In fact, I'm not even sure if this has a tire. 
You know, I know that some, some cars don't. They just have a, a kind of bottle of slime or something. I have no idea how that works. Anyway, so I ran around to the back of the car. I put my hand out there, and I realized there's a wheel there. Okay, that's good. But now what do I do? Well, I, I turned, I looked at the manual, and wonderfully that told me, go to the passenger side. So I went to the passenger side, pull the chair back. Uh, apparently, there was, a, there was a door under the chair that I didn't even know existed. And in that door, there was a box. And I got the box out, and I opened it up. And to my utter relief, everything was there. Uh, if you, you could feel the, the relief of if you have experienced that. It's like everything was there. There was no spanner that was missing. There was no wheel nut that had been lost somewhere else. Everything was there. All of the tools I needed to replace the wheel on the car. Now, I still had to do the replacement. But now I knew I had everything I needed. I had the instructions. I had the tools. There was a relief at doing that job in a way that wouldn't be the case if I, if I didn't know if I had what I needed. I had to run off and find something from a local garage. Uh, that's just a, that's a benign sort of illustration. But it's the sense in which living the Christian life, we should live out of what God has given us. To be utterly confident he has given us everything. He's not holding back. Uh, it leads, I think, to both relief and to praise. We've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. Well, what are these spiritual blessings? Um, Paul uh, turns now to tell us. Uh, look first with me at verse 4. Verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. We have been chosen to be holy and blameless. Um, it's common, isn't it, for people to fear being not chosen, not picked, whether it's sports or music or friendship groups. Um, almost there's a disproportionate number of people who are actually fearful of being chosen last. It can't possibly be that every one of us was chosen last at everything at school, and yet there's often that fear, even in the ones who did well, of not being chosen, not being wanted, not being welcomed. I think if we're honest, how many of us could feel that way a bit with God? I wonder whether for some of us, we can feel quite burdened with our sin. And if we're honest, when we think about ourselves and what we are like, and we maybe look around at other people at church, maybe in our home group. We know we're not supposed to, but we start putting one another on some sort of league table. And if we're honest we rank much lower down than others. If you like, if we were to imagine God's face towards believers, we'd imagine his smile towards some people. They, they look like they're doing really well. He must really want them. Actually, me? I don't know. Maybe he's kind of holding back a frown. He has to. He, he's sort of loving. But I, I don't really feel, as it were, him setting his love upon me that I am chosen. Uh, maybe others of us actually feel like we're doing better in the Christian life. But actually God's kind of commands to us feel like a pressure that we need to keep on our game. We need to keep it up. We start to link how God feels about us to how we're doing. See, both those responses really need to, to sit a while in what we hear here because this is incredible God has chosen us. It is not the other way around. Before the creation of the world, he chose us. Before we had any opportunity to do anything to impress him, to, to demonstrate to him what we were like, 
how good we were. He took the initiative. It might feel like we have responded to God, and there is a response that we take to the gospel. And yet here we learn the wonderful truth that before God even made the world, he had his people in mind. He chose you. Uh, But notice he chooses you for something. He chose you to be holy and blameless in his sight. To be someone who is set apart, who is different from the world's. Someone who is pure, without sin, blameless. This is a a kind of a wonderful summary of the noble calling of the Christian life. God has chosen us, but he's chosen us to, to bring us somewhere, to make us something. To be those who increasingly reflect what he is like. Uh, It's wonderful that this phrase, holy and blameless, gets picked up in Ephesians in chapter 5. In chapter 5, what is holy and blameless there? It is God's people, the church. Christ the groom dies for his bride to make them holy and blameless. As it were, to, to, to make them holy in a way that he delights in them. This is a great picture of beauty that God is committed to bringing each and every one of us who is in Christ to. Now, what difference does this make? Well, I think, firstly, this changes our confidence in the Christian life. Because if God has chosen us, this is his plan. If you feel disheartened by your sin, if you feel like change is impossible, you need to set your eyes on the fact that it is God who is tasked himself at making you holy and blameless. As it were, our action to resist sin and to trust in his words and to put sin to death by the Spirit, it comes out of the confidence that he is the one who takes the first initiative and he won't stop until he has made us like this. Isn't that good news? But I think this also changes and kind of reframes what it is to obey. We can easily hear God say hard things to us, or things that feel hard about how we should live, what we should do. We're going to see in the second half of Ephesians. Uh, He's going to tell us things about how we should relate to one another. Uh, Isn't it wonderful to understand that in the context of what it is for God to be making us a beautiful people, that he loves us enough that he is not going to stop until he makes us holy and blameless towards him. That's the first blessing. We are chosen uh, to be holy and blameless. Secondly, we are adopted to sonship. Look at verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. If I ask you the question, does God love you? If you're a believer... I wonder what you'd say. Does God love you? Um, if I asked you a different question, would you answer any differently? If I said to you, does God like you? Would you also say yes? Uh, it's an interesting um, kind of two questions that uh, I read in uh, an author uh, in a book recently. And he, he was, his experience was that actually, if you asked a lot of Christians in church... They'd be able to say, yes, does God love you? Yes, yes, I know he loves me. But if you ask them, does God like you, they'd find that harder to answer. Maybe they would say yes, but they would say that far more hesitantly, far more tentatively. It kind of exposes a gap, I think. We're kind of okay maybe with a sort of a generic love that God has shown in Christ, but there can be a, a tentativeness 
to actually applying that very personally. No, God, God doesn't just sort of love me in a generic way. He actually desires me. He likes me. Uh, I think what we see in these verses bridges that gap for us. It shows us how his love in Christ applies and works itself out. Because what we learn here is that God has adopted you. If you are in Christ, you have been adopted. Adoption to sonship. Um, In a Roman culture, um, adoption to sonship was something that would happen relatively regularly. It was a way of declaring in the eyes of the law that someone who wasn't a biological kind of descendant of a family had the same rights as those who were biologically male in that household. That's why sonship here is important. Whether we are men or women, we are both given this first-class status in God's family. The point here is this adoption puts us, as it were, legally on the same footing as the actual son, the actual heir. And we're told here that in God's love, he has predestined, he has purposed, he's planned, he's brought about our inclusion in God's family, not as remote cousins, not as extended relatives, but as nothing less than sons. Is that an amazing truth? That we have not just been chosen by God to be taken somewhere, as if we were simply kind of a project to him, but that God has chosen you and me, if we are in Christ, to know him as our father, to have a relationship with him, to have the same level of confidence of his love that our Lord Jesus Christ has before him. You see, can a father love without liking? Would we make that similar kind of distinction? I don't think we would. No, a father is committed, a good father is committed to their children. There is a loving relationship. There is a deep care. There is a security that comes in that belonging to them on which the child hopefully can depend. Now, I know that when we think about fatherhood, for some of us, we have had a great experience. And actually, maybe this becomes very easy, very instantly good to think of God as a loving father. Others of us have had a terrible experience, and we have had horrific treatment by those who should love us. And yet, even then, I think there is something in us that knows that that that's wrong. We know, as it were, what we were missing, how human fathers have failed. The truth is that we cannot build any notion of God's fatherhood on our own experience because it is so much gloriously better than anything we will have tasted. Do you see how Paul points us in verse 6, having talked about God doing this, the praise of his glorious grace, how does he describe Jesus? He talks about him as the one that he loves, the one that the Father loves. Do you see what is being told here by Paul? He's saying, in Christ, you have been adopted as sons in the one that Jesus loves. That's not a a level of indirection between us and God. That's there to boost our confidence that we are loved as God the Father loves the Son. We can look at the pages of Scripture and see how the Father delights in Jesus. We have been given that sort of standing before God. See, this adoption is secure. Um, If God had appointed us to be servants only, 
We could imagine that we might be able to lose our place as servants for doing a bad job. And yet here, this is a family belonging. God has, as it were, written the adoption deeds and there's no going back. This is the plan that he has predestined. He has planned, he's brought about, and this is all according to the pleasure of his will. Is that a lovely phrase? What does God delight to do? God doesn't have his arms twisted behind his back when he does this. He isn't forced into this. What does he desire to do? It is to share his uh, kind of love within himself with those that he's made. That is what he's doing here in Jesus. That is what he has done here for you. The Christian life is lived out of the security of knowing that we can come towards him as our father rather than our taskmaster. And all of this should lead us to praise, to the praise of his glorious grace. And we use the word grace often, don't we? Grace being his undeserved favor. God has lavished his love on us, not because we deserve to be adopted, but because he has shown his love towards us by adopting us, by wanting to give us nothing less than himself. See, if we imagine describing what it is we have in Christ to someone else. Uh, I know my experience, I, I could often jump to describing the mechanics of what God has done for me. Jesus has died in my place on the cross to take away my sins. That is absolutely true, absolutely essential, absolutely amazing. And yet all of that, as we'll see, is that we can come to know him as our father. That we can have a relationship with him that starts now. Yes, there'll be a day where he comes back and we see him face to face, but we can speak to him as our father now. There are so many implications to understanding God as our father, but surely one of the, the kind of most obvious things is how, how would we not want to come towards him in prayer, knowing that we are secure in what he has made us, knowing that whatever we are experiencing, whether it is good or bad, whether we're finding it easy or hard, that we can say those words that Jesus tells us to say, which is, our Father. We are adopted to sonship. But thirdly, we are redeemed and forgiven. I think it's interesting the order that we get to, um, that we put redemption and forgiveness, as it were, this far down the list, because I, I think Paul realizes that at this moment, if we have been tracking what he's saying, our heads will be spinning with the million reasons why God can't possibly mean what it seems to be saying here. Why he can't possibly delight in me. Why he can't possibly have chosen me, chosen to adopt me into his family. It, he must know my sin and my guilt. Whether those respectable sins or those darker thoughts and moments in my heart. And maybe you're here this morning and you are you're feeling very tender and bruised by sin that has been troubling your conscience, maybe for quite a while. Maybe it's just the general residual guilt of feeling failure again and again and again. What is it that Paul says we have in Christ? What is the spiritual blessing that is secure for us? Verse 7, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. We have redemption through his blood. God has bought us. That's the, the idea of this word redemption. We have been purchased. We are no longer slaves to sin. We have been set free. We belong to him now. He's paid the price for us. 
We have been granted forgiveness of our sins. Jesus' death on the cross really is fully and finally dealing with every one of our sins. Even the sin that we don't even know about. We don't even realize. Do you see how wonderfully reassuring these verses are trying to be to these Ephesian believers? Look at the description that is used. We have this redemption and this forgiveness in accordance with the riches of God's grace. What do we do when we feel the weight of sin and we we think we can't possibly imagine God could really have dealt with this and forgiven this? We look at God's riches. As it were, we set our eyes on his treasure chest of grace. And we let the, the magnitude of that grace kind of dwarf our sin. Do you see that? Your sin can't bankrupt God's grace. That's the the picture here. And we sing the words of that song, don't we? Um, Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Our sins are many. But look at the riches of God's grace. They are more. And that grace is something he has lavished on us. God doesn't sort of just like sprinkle his grace upon us. He doesn't sort of measure it out in this exacting way. Well, you've done something wrong again. Well, I'll give you another token no, he, he drenches us with his grace. He, he pours bucket loads of it on us. Why does he do that? Well, he wants us to be confident that when we come to Christ, our sins really have been forgiven. That they really have been dealt with. That it really is possible for us to come near to him as our father. And we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper after this. And that is a wonderful gift by God to express what it is to take this promise of forgiveness of sins, clearing the way, making us family with God, and taking symbols in our hands to remind us of the reality of Jesus' death for us, for you, for me. That is what we are saying here. God wants us to leave, as it were, being utterly confident that he really has dealt with our sin. Uh, But fourthly, Uh, And finally, we are shown God's master plan. That's the last uh, spiritual blessing uh, that we uh, see in these verses. Um, I wonder if you've experienced the uh, situation where you are listening to some music and um, you you hear the music going somewhere, uh, but then it kind of changes course. It does something that seems to be a bit jarring to start with. Uh, Maybe that's a part of a a bit of a song that feels a bit awkward um, on first listening. But then you give it some space and you you listen to it again and again. And it's precisely where the song goes that you weren't expecting. That sort of becomes one of the more beautiful parts of the song. One of the more surprising, interesting parts of the song. I wonder whether this is that sort of moment in this song that Paul is singing from his heart. Um, What is this blessing? Well, we're told in verse 9 that God has made known to us the mystery of his will. Uh, Mystery here is picturing what God has planned from the beginning of time that no one else knows yet. It's a mystery. It's it's not yet revealed. We in Christ have been shown. He's, He's pulled back the curtains. He's shown us his master plan. What it is that God is doing in the world. Where is he taking it? Well, this we're told is a plan according to his good pleasure. It happens in Christ. It's going to happen at the right moment when times reach their fulfillment. And what is it? End of verse 10, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. What, what is the most exciting central point of all history? It is what God is doing in bringing everything under Christ. That is what we're told here. That is what we are given, what was revealed to us in Christ. 
Now, why might that, that sound jarring to us? Um, maybe it doesn't, in which case that's great. But I think the reality is we live in a world that wants to say life, the most important thing about life is, is about me. Actually, it's about what I end up doing with my life. Um, this song is saying that's not important, ultimately. Uh, that has a place. We'll, we'll get to that. Uh, we thought last week about what it is to be made as God's masterpieces. But um, what this is telling us is the focal point of our lives isn't about us. We're actually ultimately not super significant in ourselves. No, what is most significant It is what God is doing in Christ. See, our world wants us to maybe sing songs that call attention to our praise that show how we've left a mark. We want our names, as it were, written in halls of fame, showing that we've done something significant, that we've made a difference. This wonderfully tells us that that's not true. And it doesn't need to be true. I was reminded this week of the um, Hobbit book. And um, uh, if you've read those, you might remember there's a scene at the end when um, after all of the adventure that's happened, all the way that Bilbo Baggins has been at sort of the heart of that adventure and, and those things that have happened, um, Gandalf, the, the older, wiser wizard, um, basically is explaining that everything has happened according to the prophecy as it was planned. And he, he, he tries to clarify, he makes this clarification for Bilbo. Uh, he says this, he says, you are a very fine person, Mr. Baggins, and I'm very fond of you. But you are only quite a little fellow in a whole wide world after all. Okay? You've been, you've been taken up in all of this adventure and excitement. But Gandalf says, look, look, you need to remember, you've been part of all these amazing things. And yet you, after all, are only really a small hobbit in the middle of nowhere. Now, I don't know how you'd feel if someone came up to you and said, you know what? You are... You are really just a small person in a big, wide world. We could easily be discouraged by that sort of statement. We could think that that says, um, thank you for people moving around. It's like getting slowly. There we go. There we go. Lights back on again. Um, we could easily feel discouraged by that sort of statement. And yet, here's how he responds. He says, thank goodness. Thank goodness. And uh, he then hands uh, Gandalf the tobacco jar. You probably wouldn't find that in uh, stories these days uh, for kids. But it's a relief. Thank goodness the world does not rest on me. How awful would that be to think that the world rested on me? No, we, we have a place in it. That's enough. But here's what's the really exciting thing. is When we realize how good it is to, to not have the weight of the world rest on our shoulders and what we do with it, where we are taking it, we get to marvel at what God is doing in Jesus God's master plan that he has shown us, that he shared with us, is a plan that he is excited about. He is delighting in. It is where he's taking everything to, and it's ultimately to bring harmony under Christ. You see, this is the very thing that we desire and long for with all our hearts. This is the undoing of the fracture of sin uh, that has kind of wreaked havoc in this world. It is submitting everything, good and bad, under the feet of Jesus. It is seeing him exalted over all things. This is what the Father delights to do. And in him, as those who are adopted into his family, as it were, we are delight, we're sort of invited to delight with the Father in what he's doing in Jesus. We are shown God's master plan. Well, I wonder how our, our hearts are feeling. Are your hearts stirred by this? Are these truths things that, at the very least, we want? 
we, we long to grow in confidence about. We long to claim that when someone asks us, do you really believe that this is what you have in Christ right now in the heavenly realms? We could confidently say yes. Oh, we're going to see at the end of chapter 1 that Paul actually prays for these Ephesian believers, that the Spirit would give them help, wisdom and revelation, that we would know God better. The Christian life, as it were, is both singing this song and growing in confidence in singing this song. And this is something we need to pray for one another uh, that we would grab hold of with greater certainty. Well, let's just have a moment's quiet and let me lead us in prayer. Father God, we, we find it hard to take these words and to believe them and trust them, to know the reality that these things are true of us in Christ because of what he has done for us. And yet, Father, we thank you that you give us your spirit to reassure us that we might take these words, as it were, and we might press them deep in our hearts, that we might know with utter joy that you are the one who have chosen us, that you are the one who has worked adoption in our lives, who have brought us into your family, that you have dealt with every sin in our hearts, that you have revealed to us where you are taking this world. Father, we thank you for what we see here of your utter glorious grace, your goodness, your desire to do us good where we deserve none of it. Lord, would you give us greater, sweeter trust in these words? Would this song really kind of imbibe our hearts? Would it make it thrilled to sing your praise? Father, we pray for those who maybe struggle with assurance. Lord, please might your spirit assure them of the reality of these things for them. Lord, we thank you for uh, what it is to share the Lord's Supper together in just a moment. Please, again, might you help us know both the utter forgiveness that we have at the cost of your son's blood, but might we know what that forgiveness is for in bringing, you in, bringing us into a secure relationship with you in which we might glory in you and praise you forevermore. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.